So here we go in this season of Lent, starting a new series. And since we are reading through the book of Hebrews for the season of Lent, I'm going to be preaching on Hebrews. And all right, there's too much there for me to preach through the entire book in the weeks of Lent, even though we are reading through the entire book. So I'm going to be hopscotching around and selecting different passages each week from here until Easter out of Hebrews for us to read together. Hebrews. Why do we pick Hebrews? Let's talk a little bit about that first, of what the book of Hebrews even is and what it means and why we pull that one forward here in this season of Lent. Hebrews, maybe you didn't know this, but Hebrews, the book of Hebrews was very close to being taken out of the Bible, of not being one of those books of Scripture. So as the Bible came together in the first three, four hundred years after, um, after the church was founded, after Jesus rose and the apostles spread it around, and, and they, they had these writings going around which eventually came together as the New Testament, right? The, the gospel letters and all the writings of Paul and, and those writings that eventually became the New Testament of the Bible. And, and that endured for a long time as that came together. And at that time, as the Roman Catholic Church came together and those things were copied over and over again, it became part of the Bible that way, all in Latin as that came through until the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. The Protestant reformers had it within them to go back as much as they could to original sources. So not the Latin Vulgate Bible as they had it passed along, but could they find and go back to the original Greek and the Hebrew and track that down? And, and when they did that, they found certain books that were part of the Bible that they took out. And maybe you're familiar with what some of those books are because they exist in what's called the Apocrypha, right? Some of those other extra-biblical books, books like Esdras or Maccabees or Tobit, books that we don't read because they're not a part of our Bible, but they were at one time. And in that debate when those books were all being hashed out, for a while, Hebrews was on the chopping block to be out. And there was a reason why, because the Protestant reformers at that time, especially for New Testament letters, considered the authenticity of the author to be high priority. They wanted to know who wrote those books in the New Testament. It wasn't the same for the Old Testament, because Old Testament was Jewish scripture that had been passed down for many generations before. But for these New Testament letters, they went back and looked and said, but who wrote it? Where did this come from anyway? And the book of Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament that made it in for which we have no clue who the author is. We don't know where it comes from or who wrote it. There's no clue for that. It's never identified anywhere in the book. But it still made it in. And I think the reason it still made it into the Bible is that the content is so rich, right? That when you read the book of Hebrews, you think, okay, so we don't know who wrote it, but there's such good stuff here. How can you get rid of this? It speaks to the gospel so highly. So that's why it's still in the Bible, even though it's the only book in the New Testament which does not have an identified author, but it speaks the truth of Scripture. And it does so in ways that are unique. So uh, 
the anonymous author is not the only unique part of the book of Hebrews. The other thing that makes Hebrews unique is that, well, as the title implies, it's written to the Hebrews, right? To the Jewish Christians. So there is, in the book of Hebrews, there's an assumption that the readers, the people who read this letter, knew their Old Testament scriptures and knew it well because they were born and raised as Hebrew people. So because they knew their Old Testament scripture well, here's what we're going to see as we read through Hebrews. We're going to see references all over the place to Old Testament. Quoting here and there again. And quoting Old Testament not in a way where the author is trying to prove anything that this is true, right? I want you to believe the Old Testament. The assumption was there. The assumption is there that you already know these words and you already believe these words of the Old Testament. So what the author of Hebrews is doing then is pulling those words from the Old Testament forward and saying, I want you to see the way that all of this truth from the Old Testament comes forward and connects to Jesus in the New Testament. That's what Hebrews is about. It's about connecting the Old Testament to Jesus. And that's where we start with it today. So I'm going to read the last part of chapter 1 for us to look at today. So from Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm beginning at verse 5. Here's what it says. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same. And your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, this is an odd place to begin, right? Here we are launching Hebrews, and it's this discussion about angels. What do we do with all of this talk about angels? Why does Hebrews begin there? Well, as we figure through some of those things and understand where angels play into this, well, I mean, let's understand, first of all, that We shouldn't be sidetracked by that. 
because I know for some people, angels and the topic of angels can, can sort of be a fascination, a fascination to the point where it becomes a distraction, right? A, a distraction of taking our attention away from Jesus because maybe we're so fascinated with who angels are and what angels do and where angels show up yet today. And that's not really the point that's going on here in Hebrews, right? It shouldn't derail us or distract us that way to to be this discussion just about trying to figure out and unlock some kind of mystery about angels. That's not the point that's going on here. So why does the author of Hebrews then start with angels, and how angels fit into this. Well, as I mentioned, there's, there's so much reference back to the Old Testament. So much reference that takes place, and, and I put on the slide here just how many of those references take place just in what we read here this morning. Right out of those nine verses that we looked at this morning, look at all the references to Old Testament that show up just in those verses. And if you've got an NIV Bible or something open, you can see all of those things footnoted there. There's references to that to find what those passages are. All of this Old Testament talk about angels and who angels are, and then the Son, Jesus, and who the Son is, all coming forward into this passage. You see, I'm I'm sort of thinking that what's happening in the author here is is that maybe they're addressing some kind of assumption maybe among the readers that questioning who Jesus is. Is is Jesus just in some way maybe a really glorified angel, right? Because they didn't have at that time this formulated doctrine of the Trinity like we have today. There there was not in the time when Hebrews was written some understanding that everyone accepted that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was still working itself out. They were still writing these letters in order to show the way that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the author of Hebrews here seems to be pushing a bit towards that pushing a bit towards the idea that, no, no, for those of you who are thinking Jesus was just some kind of a glorified heavenly being like an angel, that's not true. Jesus is not one of the angels. right? That seems to be the obvious main point that's going on in this passage, that the author is convincing his readers. Don't think of Jesus as just one of the angels, as one of the created beings. There's something more there. Something different there. So, so let's, let's figure that one out, okay? We'll figure that one out then in a way that, well, it says something to us today too. What does that mean for us as we start this journey of Lent through the book of Hebrews? So who are angels then? Right? Where do angels come from in that understanding of what we see in Scripture? Primarily, the thing that we see most about angels is that they are messengers from God. That angels are messengers from God. When angels show up in Scripture, this is most often what we see about them, right? When Abraham was visited by what are just called three visitors in the Old Testament that announced to him that he and Sarah will have a child together, it's a message that comes through angels that way. 
Moses was one of those guys who talked directly to God. So Moses is sort of special on that level. But after Moses came Joshua. And right before Joshua is about to go into that first battle with Jericho, it's an angel who comes and gives Joshua the message from God of how it is they are to approach that battle of Jericho. Angels were the ones revealed to Gideon as surrounding the armies of the Midianites, their enemy at that time. Angels delivered that message. In the New Testament, it's Zechariah who receives a message from the angel announcing the birth of his son, John, who would be John the Baptist. Angel comes, an angel comes to visit Mary and give Mary the announcement that she will give birth to Jesus. An angel appears in the dreams of Joseph to announce that he will then become the father who, who marries Mary and then takes on that role of being the father to that family. Angels are messengers from God. In fact, angel itself, it comes from the Greek word angelos, which in Greek literally means message or messenger. It's the primary function they have. Jesus then does not just come as a messenger. Jesus is not here only to give a message, but Jesus comes with something more. Jesus comes to accomplish the work of God that no one else but God can do. It's not just to preach and give stories that help people learn and know who God is, although Jesus did do that, right? in speaking of his parables and the way he taught. But if that's all Jesus ever did was just teach about God, teach about God's love and mercy and forgiveness, it wouldn't have gotten very far. Because what we needed, what we need, is more than just a lesson, more than just a message, more than just knowledge. We needed God to do something, to show up on our behalf and to do what we are incapable of doing ourselves. That sets Jesus apart. That makes Jesus different from what the angels do. You see, I think what the author of Hebrews was after here was he's starting down this road to, to show how Jesus and angels are different because he's heading in that direction where he's going to be explaining and we're going to see this in coming weeks as we read through this that Jesus does something extraordinary beyond what anyone else is capable of doing. And not just speaking of humans, people, not just that people are incapable of doing what needed to be done, but, but even the heavenly beings like the angels are incapable of doing what needs to be done for our salvation. So the author of Hebrews puts it out there right away that this Jesus is divine, the Son of God, eternally from before the creation. And so it's not as though Jesus 
became divine. It's not like Jesus, well, maybe he used to be an angel and then he got a promotion, right? Came through the ranks that way. Nope, all of that is off the table. That's not where the author of Hebrews wants to leave any room for that to happen. That Jesus has eternally been God as one of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all time. So God comes to do what only God can do when Jesus comes, lives among us. But here's what else I think. I think that, that this beginning of Hebrews by talking about angels, it, it doesn't begin, see, it's not a discussion that begins here with us, right? I mean, in, in some of the, in the Gospels, that's sort of where it lands is let's talk about the incarnation. Let's talk about when Jesus became human. Let's talk about when Jesus showed up among people. But the author of Hebrews wants to peel back the curtain just a little bit more, right? The author of Hebrews wants to give us just a little bit of a peek behind the scenes to see a little bit something more so that we understand something. What is it that we understand out of this? Well, well, we understand by that that what Jesus comes to accomplish and do on our behalf then is not just about me or you or people. Or if I could say it another way, what Jesus came to accomplish, what Jesus accomplishes on the cross is cosmic. Uh, Cosmic in the sense of All creation, the universe, everything. You see, the salvation that Jesus comes to bring is not just personal, individual salvation. He didn't come just to redeem me and to redeem you. No, Jesus came to redeem and to restore the creation, all that God made. Because everything that God made was subjected to sin when Adam and Eve fell. The entire creation fell that way. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. This comes from Romans 8. He says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. What the Apostle Paul is pointing to, and and I think where the author of Hebrews is, is intending for our minds to go here, is to see that, you know what, the salvation that we're talking about, the redemption that we're talking about, the thing that, that as we head towards Easter that we're looking forward to, it's not just a individual spiritual salvation, but it's a resurrection of the creation itself. That God is in the business of making all things new again. And that includes us. We're a part of that. 
So the author of Hebrews pulls back the curtain and gives us a little bit of a glimpse beyond just you and me and God to see the way that what God does is cosmic, right? It's about the entire creation. It's about the whole world that has fallen into sin and being restored and renewed and being made right with God again. And we see a glimpse of that here just by showing the place of Jesus among the heavenly beings, among the angels, as that comes to us. It gives us that glimpse of that. Jesus himself gave us a little bit of a nod in that direction. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, when when the disciples come to Jesus and they ask Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. How should we pray? Part of that prayer that he gives them starts out with this line. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. An acknowledgement that the perfect will of God exists in his heavenly throne room, in his realm. That the, the angels who minister before God are ones who do his bidding and his perfect will there. And when we approach God in prayer and we pull back that curtain and we see the, the cosmic sense of God's salvation, then we say that prayer, God, as your will exists in heaven perfectly, we desire for that will to exist here with us too. May your will as it is in heaven also be an expression of your will that we see here with us in this place, in this world. Broken as we are, fallen as we may be, what we're asking for in that prayer is we're asking a couple of things, right? First of all, show us some glimpses Let us see some glimpsing evidence of that even now in our world as Jesus, through his resurrection, gives a glimpse, a glimpse of the coming total resurrection. As the apostles go forward and spread the church and and miracles happen and lives are restored, glimpses, glimpses of restoration of redemption. That's one part. But the other part is that it's a prayer for us that longs for it to be completed, right? That we long for the complete restoration when Jesus will return and make all things new again. And we look forward to that. So we see here at the beginning of Hebrews this big picture of God's redemption before we get into the detail and the nitty-gritty of it. You know, as we begin this season of Lent, it, uh, it begins for us with, well, what we did this past week on Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday, as that beginning of Lent is very individual. It's a time for individual people to come before God and say, you know what, I'm going to begin this journey of Lent by, by acknowledging in my own heart, in my own life, that I am broken that I need to be humbled before God, that I need to repent because I need a Savior. Ash Wednesday begins Lent that way. It's very individual. But as we proceed through this then, 
we begin to notice and see the ways that it moves past being only individual to being a movement or a call upon the church in Lent for all of us, all of us together, that we all come before God in need of restoration. And not just us, but the world we live in needs God's restoration. And so we bring that before God as well in our time of Lent. That peace that acknowledges that God's redemptive plan is not just for me, not just for you, not just for us, but it's for our world. And it gives so much meaning to those words when we pray it. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It also gives us this glimpse by pulling back this curtain and seeing behind this a little bit with the angels in heaven. It gives us this glimpse that God had been working toward this the whole time. Maybe that's a good reminder for us today too. A reminder that what Jesus did was not plan B or plan C or wherever it was down the line, right? It's not as though the world fell into sin and God said, well... Noah, he looks like a pretty good guy. Let's try this. I'm going to try with just Noah and, and we'll wipe it all out. We'll hit a reset. Well, that didn't work. Tell you what, let's, uh, that Abraham, he's a pretty decent guy. Let's go with him and his descendants and let's try this again. And, well, that didn't work. All right, I, I guess it's time to call in Jesus. That's not how this works. Right? It's not that Jesus was an afterthought to this. It's not that Jesus was just one of these, let's just throw darts at the dartboard and see what sticks and what doesn't. That's not the way we look at what Jesus did here. But we peel back the curtain a bit and we see what's happening in the heavenly realms as a way of reminding ourselves that this is something God had been working towards all along that everything that occurred in the Old Testament was leading up to Jesus and pointing forward to Jesus. It's a reminder for us that Jesus is not the result of guesses or uncertainties or miscalculations or failed attempts. That's not how our salvation works. But all of those things that took place in the Old Testament, all of those ways, those habits, those regulations, the the priests and the sacrifices in the temple and everything that they did as a part of their religious history that gave them their purity before God, all of that was pointing forward to something, pointing forward to Jesus. We're going to see that. Because that's what Hebrews is all about. In the readings that come forward this month, there's going to be talk about priests and tabernacles and sacrifices and all those things that are Old Testament stuff. And the way that every single one of those things points forward to Jesus, showing us and telling us again and again that Jesus was the plan all along that this was God's plan from the very beginning to redeem his world, to rescue us from sin. 
So may it be for us then in this season of Lent that as we have our glimpses into the glory of God and his kingdom, may it be for us that those are glimpses that fill us with hope that we see more glimpses of redemption in our world as we eagerly await for God's complete restoration of all of his creation. Let's pray together. God, thank you that in your word you reveal to us your plan of salvation and that it is so much bigger and so much more than, than we know or imagine or could even compass ourselves. So Lord, we pray. We pray first of all, keep giving us glimpses of that restoration even here and now in this broken world. Glimpses of restoration that point us beyond just ourselves, but the way that you work in and through us in your world. And Lord, also fill us with hope, a hope that eagerly anticipates when you will complete that restoration and make all things new again. Lord, in that, may you be the one who is exalted over all. And we worship you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.